as disciples of Jesus, we have all had times we were what Paul would call fervent in spirit in our service to the Lord. We put in significant effort to grow spiritually, maintain a close relationship with Jesus. Uh, during this time, we did all that we could to, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This wasn't done out of a sense of obligation. It wasn't done because we felt like it was something that we had to do. It was something we did because we loved Jesus and we wanted to know Him better and we wanted to be more like Him in our lives. Now, while we've had that time, a question for us to answer is, is it still that way? I mean, is that still true of my life? Am I still growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Am I still growing in my relationship with Jesus? Am I still drawing closer to Him and, and being changed to be more like Him than I've ever been? Or would we say that maybe we're not as close? Maybe we've let some things slip. Maybe we've stagnated a little bit in our spiritual life. Uh, and that's a real question to ask because spiritual stagnation is something we always have to be on guard against. Right? Because spiritual stagnation is dangerous because it doesn't happen in big steps overnight. Not, not typically. Rather, it happens in small, consistent increments over time. As a general rule, spiritual stagnation is a result of spiritual neglect. Right? Because very few people who are ever fully devoted followers of Jesus intend to become spiritually stagnant. They don't say, well, I've done all I'm going to do and now I'm just going to kind of drift through for the rest of my, my time on earth. Instead, other things come up. We get busy. We get to doing other things. And, and that spiritual neglect, the doing the things to help us to grow, it, that neglect, it leads to a period of spiritual stagnation. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that, that shows us some warning signs of this spiritual stagnation so that we can learn how to overcome it. Open your Bible to Hosea chapter 10. I think it's on page 685 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Hosea 1, or 10 and 1 says, Israel is an empty vine, and he bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased his altars. According to the goodness of the land, they have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found guilty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king, because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely, making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock and furrows in the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calves of beth -Aven. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. It shall also be carried unto Assyria for a present to the king Jerob. And Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come upon their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and the hills fall upon us. O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood in the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquities, and did not overtake them. 
It is my desire that I should chastise them and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. And Ephraim is as a heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn. But I passed over her fair neck and I will make Ephraim to ride to ride. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his cloth. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou distrust in thy way and in the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore shall a tumult rise among the people, and all the fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the days of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children, so shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness in a morning, or in your great wickedness, in a morning shall the king of Israel be utterly cut off. Time, the title of the message is Identifying and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and goodness. Guide us that we would be focused upon you. Help us tonight, Lord, to listen to what you have for us from your word. Let your spirit and your word work together to, to change us, to strengthen us, to identify any areas of spiritual neglect or spiritual stagnation that may exist in our lives. Let us take it seriously if it's there and do what you have laid out for us to do so that we can turn from it, Lord, and we would not be this way. Father, work in our lives and strengthen us. Help us to always be fervent in spirit, serving you. Give me your spirit tonight to fill me and to guide me. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use me for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. At the time of his ministry, everything appeared to be wonderful for Israel. It was a time of great financial prosperity. There was an apparent religious devotion and a, and a real sense of national security. And the outward appearance of the people, it did a good job of hiding the spiritual stagnation that was really quietly destroying them. And Hosea's mission was in part to warn the people about their spiritual stagnation, to urge them to come back. Now, verse 12 is really the heart of the problem. So to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up the fallow ground of your heart. The fallow ground that that needed to be broken up, it was their heart. Now, from what I understand, fallow ground is ground that has been neglected, it has been unused, and it has grown hard. And, and that's a perfect description of their hearts. Their hearts were hard towards God. They had neglected really the things of their spiritual life, the things of God as they should have, and it had caused them to have, a, to have an increasingly hard hearts that led them further and further away from God. And this, this, this hardening of the heart, it also caused them to deceive themselves. They looked at the apparent ease of their life, at the prosperity of the land, and they said, everything must be okay. Right? We're, we're safe. Our armies are strong. There are no enemies coming against us right now. We're, we're financially prosperous. God must really be blessing us. That was kind of their mindset. And what's scary about this is they didn't get here overnight. They probably did not get here in great big leaps. They probably never planned for this to their spiritual lives to get into this condition. Instead, what happened was there was just a gradual but continual process of neglecting their spiritual lives. And that neglect of their spiritual life, it produced a spiritual stagnation that hardened their hearts. And this should be a warning to us because what happened in Israel 
can happen to any one of us. Because the reality is, spiritual neglect always produces spiritual stagnation, and that always hardens our hearts. Right? That, that is just the progression and the way that it always goes. When we neglect our spiritual life, we become spiritually stagnant. And as we become spiritually stagnant, our hearts harden towards God and towards the things of God. And Hebrews 3 warns us about the danger of a hard heart, saying that the hard heart is what leads us to depart from God. Right? The hard heart is what pushes us further and further away. We must be on guard against spiritual neglect, spiritual stagnation, and the hardening of our hearts. So how do we do this? Well, the first thing we have to do is identify the warning signs. It is entirely too easy for any of us to dismiss the idea of spiritual stagnation and the hardening of hearts out of hand. And we can say, what we'll do is we'll say something kind of like, well, I may have neglected my spiritual life, but I'm not spiritually stagnant and my heart really isn't hardened. Because, I mean, really, who wants to, to be honest and admit that we are spiritually stagnant and we have a hardening heart? I, I know that certainly that's not something I would want to admit in my life. And since we, it's not something we would want to admit, we become very good at explaining away our spiritual neglect. We begin explaining away the signs of uh, spiritual stagnation and the hardening of our hearts. And we need, we need objective warnings that are absolute signs of spiritual stagnation and the hardening of the hearts. In Isaiah 10, or Hosea 10, it gives us five, five warning signs, and then there's one more from another chapter that we'll look at. So, warning signs. The first warning sign is a lack of gratitude. A lack of gratitude. But look at verse 1. Israel was an empty vine. He bringeth forth his fruit unto himself, According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased his altars. According to the goodness of the land, they have made goodly images. And the picture here is that Israel was very prosperous at this time. Right? Their, their vines were very fruitful, and it made them a very prosperous people. But notice how they responded to the great prosperity that God had given them. Right? They brought forth the fruit unto themselves first and foremost... Then they increase the altars, but notice the wording. It's not God's altars. According to the goodness of the land, they have made goodly images. Right? So, as they prospered, they did two things with it. They first, they brought it forth to themselves. This is what I want to do with what I have. I'm not seeking God. I'm not trying to decide or seek what God would have me to do. This is mine. I'm going to use it for my pleasure. And then secondly, they began to use them and spend it on their idols. Right? The more that God blessed them, the more that they abused His blessings by building idols and adorning their idols and making them more and more fancy. They took the blessings of God for granted. And rather than these blessings turning their hearts to God in gratitude and devotion, they became selfish, they became ungrateful, and they became entitled in their lives. God would just continue and always do this. Now, we know from James 1:17 that every good and perfect gift comes down from God above. 
Which means that anything good that we have in our lives, or anything good we've ever had in our lives, this is a gift of God. right? And part of what we understand about this is that it is a gift of God's mercy. Right? There is not one thing God has ever given us good that we have ever earned. There is nothing that we do that puts God in our debt so that He has to bless us and He has to give us good things. Everything we have, every good and perfect thing we have ever had or ever will have are gifts of God's mercy and grace. So the question is how am I responding to the gifts that God is giving me? How am I responding to the good things that God is doing in me and through me and for me? But are the blessings of God causing me to respond with worship and devotion to the God who is giving me so much? Or are the blessings of God causing me to respond with a more of an entitled attitude and taking no real thought to God as the giver of every good gift that I have? Are the many blessings of God causing me to respond generously by giving back some of what God has given me to help others? Or are the good gifts that God is giving me causing me to focus merely on myself, my wants and my wishes? Am I responding to the goodness and the greatness and the gifts of God with gratitude to God for His blessings? Or am I responding with grumbling and griping because I'm not getting more and maybe somebody else seems to be blessed in a greater way than I am? A lack of gratitude is a symptom of spiritual stagnation and a hardening heart. Warning sign one, a lack of gratitude. Warning sign two, a divided heart. Look at verse two. Their heart is divided. The hearts of the people were divided. There there was a very real sense in which the people did want to be all in for God. Yet at the same time, they really didn't want to let go of the pleasures that this world offered them to be all in for God. So one minute they wanted to to be sold out to God, but in the next minute they they wanted to cling to their idols and to their sin and to the other things that that was drawing them Away from God. They could not decide who or what they were going to serve. Right? We see this in verse 5 and 6. The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the, the calf of beth For the people thereof shall mourn over it. And the priests thereof that rejoiced on it. For the glory thereof because it is departed from them. And then in verse 6 it talks about God's going to take it away. Now the, the calf that he's talking about is a part of the culture of the northern kingdom. But if you remember the story of when the kingdom was divided and it was taken away, there were two tribes that went with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, two, two tribes that went with Jeroboam. And as Jeroboam led the ten tribes, it came time for a big religious celebration where they were all supposed to go to the temple and make offerings to God. And his, his fear was, as they went to Jerusalem, to the temple, that they would say, oh wait, this is how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be serving the, the sons of David, not this Jeroboam guy. And so he created a golden calf like the one Aaron made. And he set it up 
And he said, Behold, O Israel, the God who brought you out of Egypt. And he began to pull people back and say, This is what God is like. Let's worship our golden calf. And it became a great source of of pride. It was a part of their cultural identity of worshiping that calf. And so what we see in verse 5 is that one of their greatest fears is of losing that golden calf. Now, in their minds and in their hearts, they know. They know the story. They know that God is not a big golden calf. They know that that did not represent God. But it was such an ingrained part of their cultural identity that they they had a real hard time letting it go to be all in for God. And so it was like, I I really want to worship the God of Israel, but... We've always worshipped this calf. We've we've always gone and made sacrifices there. And so their hearts were divided. Now Jesus said in Matthew 6.24 that we cannot serve two masters. And there are two main reasons why we cannot serve Jesus with a divided heart. And one of those is that Jesus just doesn't accept a divided loyalty. I mean, we know from... Jesus' teaching about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Him. When He makes these statements, He always either prefaces them or follows them up with something like, if you're not willing to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Me, you cannot be My disciple. Right? He, he doesn't say that it'll be hard. He doesn't say it'll be difficult. He says you cannot. You absolutely, positively cannot be my disciple without doing these things. See, Jesus, He knows His own worth. He knows He is worthy of full-hearted devotion. He knows that He is worthy of us denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Him. And because of that, He does not accept half-hearted devotion. And the other reason we can't have a divided heart is that the divided heart will never be satisfied. People do not live with a divided heart forever. Because what happens is that the part of the heart that wants to serve Jesus, it is always going to be convicted about the stuff that we're doing that's not serving Jesus. But when we have in our mind, I want to serve Jesus, but I want to do this too. Then as we're doing this, The part that wants to serve Jesus is always going to be saying, you know this is wrong. And we will never really enjoy the sin fully because we know that this is where we ought to be. And that kind of makes us miserable. But at the same time, when we are serving Jesus, the part that wants to be in the world is like, come on, let's get out of here. This is not going to work. This is not what we want. We like it over here. And so what happens is, the person with a divided heart, they stay unhappy. They never really feel satisfied because they're never fully devoted to anything. They're not all the way in the world. They're not all the way with Jesus. So they're always unhappy. And and the reality is, people don't live like that for long. Someone with a divided heart will always choose one side or the other. We cannot serve Jesus with a divided heart. And a divided heart is a symptom of spiritual stagnation. 
and a hardening heart. Warning sign three is spiritual apathy. Now look at verse three. This is interesting. For now they say we have no king because we feared not the Lord. Okay, so here's their statement. Things are as they should be and we know it. We know it's because we've not feared God like we should, right? We know we haven't served God like we ought to and that's the problem. But notice what they go on to say. But what then could a king do for us? Right? What they're saying is, yeah, we don't have a king because we haven't feared the Lord. But really, I mean, what difference would a king actually make? I mean, what, what changes could a king make? How, how would that actually help us? In a way, it's like when someone says, I know I should pray. Or I know I should read my Bible. Or I know I should be faithful to church. Or I know I should be more active in serving Jesus. And then says, uh, oh well. I mean, what are you going to do, right? That's spiritual apathy. Or, or someone that says, I know I'm judgmental. I know I'm spiritually lazy. I know I'm selfish. I know I'm prideful. I know I lack self-control. And then says, oh well, I am what I am. I mean, what are you going to do about it? It's just who I am. They recognize the problem, they just don't care enough to try to change it. The defining question of a person who is spiritually apathetic is... Will this send me to hell? Right, for instance, let's say we, we read in, in God's Word a way in which our lives are out of sync with God. Now, a person who is all in for Jesus will read the way that they're out of sync and they will say, I need to bring my life into sync. Right? I, I need to change what I believe, how I act, what I'm doing, because the Bible's right and apparently I'm wrong. But the spiritually apathetic person will look at the way that they're out of sync with God's Word and what they'll say is, will this send me to hell? I mean, if I don't bring my life into sync with God's Word in this area, will that send me to hell? And if it will not send them to hell, they will not make the changes. And really what will happen is, if they're in the early stages of spiritual apathy, will this send me to hell? If the answer is yes, then they will probably say, oh, fine, fine. And they will miserably, groppingly bring themselves into conformity to God's Word. But in a latter the latter stages of spiritual apathy, they will begin to make excuses as to why that yes really isn't a yes. It would probably be accurate to say that the spiritually apathetic person wants to live as close to the world as they possibly can while escaping the fires of hell. If this action will not send them to hell, or not doing this, or doing this will not send them to hell, then in their mind they think, why, why do it? I'm still going to heaven. Why make this change? It's spiritual apathy. And spiritual apathy is a symptom of spiritual stagnation and the hardening of the heart. Warning sign number four. Breaking promises. Look at verse 4. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. But they made promises they didn't keep. Now, 
It's interesting because the wording, I don't think this refers to God's covenant. They had clearly broken God's covenant. This is talking about covenants they make with people. They're, they're making agreements with people to do something, saying that they will. And a covenant is essentially a promise, and then they're not doing it. Which makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to me that if I am unfaithful with God, then probably I'm going to be unfaithful toward people as well. And there are many ways that this could have been seen. We don't know, maybe with business practices. Uh, which is the most likely in this scenario, but it could be seen in not keeping a promise to our children, not doing something after we say that we will, not being faithful to our spouse. Right? All in all, it's just not being reliable. Our word not really matter. So the question for us, am I someone others can depend on? If I tell someone I'm going to do something, and they know me, is their response, is their expectation that yes, to the best of my abilities I will, or is their expectation that I am most likely to break this word again? Can your, can your spouse, can my spouse trust me without fear? Am I someone that is dependable and reliable and that my word Matters. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Now, Matthew 5.37, Jesus says that our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. Psalm 15.4 says that we're supposed to keep our word even if it hurts. So do we, do we keep our word? Does our yes mean yes and our no mean no? Do we do what we say we're going to do? If not, then we have to understand that breaking promises is a symptom of spiritual stagnation and, a, and, a, and that of a hardening heart. Number five is habitual sin. Look at verse 13. They have plowed wickedness, reaped iniquity, eaten the fruit of lies. They trusted in their own ways and the multitude of their mighty men. Um, I think that I like the New Living Translation. It says something like they cultivated wickedness and raised a thriving crop of sin. And the picture being painted is that they had worked really, really hard at their sin. Right? And all their work had paid off at sin because they were raising a thriving crop. One sin produced another, which produced another, which produced another, and on and on it tends to go without end. Their spiritual neglect led to spiritual stagnation. And that led to a heart so hard, it was unburdened by their habitual sin. Now, the picture here is not that they were trying to live for God and that they stumbled. The picture is that they were really all in for their sin. They weren't trying to resist temptation. They weren't trying to get sin out of their lives. It was just a regular part of their life that they enjoyed and and as a general rule, probably you could say they felt no guilt about it. So we have to ask ourselves, do I live a life of habitual sin? Not do I sin. We, we all sin. But there are times where we try our best for Jesus and we still fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is for all people in all times. 
That's not, that's not the picture at verse 13. It's not the picture that we're looking at. The picture of habitual sin is that sin is the norm for your life. Right? It, it is such the norm for your life that you really don't even typically try to resist the temptation. You don't really try to resist, uh, restrain the sin. That really, you don't even feel guilty about the sin in your life. It's just okay. For whatever reason. There's a probably a reason you have as to why the sin is okay. And if someone brings it up, or if the, the Word or the Spirit convicts us about that, we respond in anger. We respond with absolute rejection. We, we have all of these reasons why it's okay. How we live in regard to the purity of life, and how we respond to conviction of sin, says a lot, a, an awful lot, about our spiritual condition. So habitual sin without remorse is a symptom of spiritual stagnation and a hardening heart. And then the, the, the final warning sign is a lack of commitment to God's Word. Right, look at Hosea 8.12. And really, this is probably the, the main one that led to everything. Hosea 8.12, it says, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. Think about that. Again, Jewish people were raised in church. They were raised, taught the law from a child. And yet here they are. They are so far from God in, in their hearts that when they hear the law, it sounds like crazy talk. I mean, they decided that, that what the Bible had to say to them about how to live was so crazy, it really did not apply to them. They felt no obligation whatsoever to do what the Bible said. What God said, because that's really what it's all about. So the question, what, what is my attitude toward God's Word? Right, think about the warning signs that we've seen up here. And what they teach us about how we should live. Our gratitude for all that God has done should produce worship. It should produce devotion. It should produce selflessness and generosity. Rather than have a divided heart, Jesus should be the priority in our lives. Or as Jesus said, we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It should bother us deeply when there are areas of our lives that are not in conformity to what God has said. I mean, our first question should not be, will this send me to hell? Our goal in life shouldn't be to see how close to the world we can live. Do we do we, we are to do our dead level best to keep God's to keep our word? Our lives should be characterized by holiness more than sin. And when there is sin, there should be brokenness over that sin that follows. And when we see that, what is our our heart's cry? Is it 
yes, I get it. That is the way we should live. That is the way I want to live and that's the way I'm striving to live. Or is our response more like, oh, come on. You can't really expect people to live like that in 2019. It's just a different world. That's not real. That's not, it's not realistic to say that we live like that. Now one of those answers shows a real commitment to God's Word. And the other does not. God's Word, it is the visible expression of God's heart. God's thoughts, God's plans, and God's desire are revealed through His Word. And our response to God's Word should show that we understand the nature of God's Word. I mean, as we talked about with the false prophets, that it is the very Word of God. Our view of Scripture should be high just like God's is. We should understand that by disobeying God's Word, we are disobeying God Himself. We should understand that we cannot be devoted to God without being devoted to His Word. A lack of commitment to God's Word is a symptom of spiritual stagnation and a hardening heart. So if we see these warning signs in our life, what do we do? How do we overcome it? Well, first, we sow righteousness. But look at verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Now notice the contrast of verse 12 and 13. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. Now this is, both of these are a great picture of the law of sowing and reaping. Right? You, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you reap one thing. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap something differently. In this case, the picture is sow in righteousness. So how do we, how do we sow in righteousness? In a lot of ways, you just sort of do the opposite of whatever we were doing to sow in unrighteousness, to sow to the flesh. But if, if we're greedy, that's sowing to the flesh. If we want to sow to the Spirit, then we we be generous. If we're selfish, well, that's sowing or plowing in wickedness. And if we want to sow in righteousness, we we choose to be selfless. For apathetic, that is plowing in wickedness. And if we want to sow in righteousness, we we begin to care about these things. If we break our word, that's plowing in wickedness. So to sow in righteousness, we we keep our word. We do what we say we're going to do. If we're judgmental, that's plowing in wickedness. And we want to we want to sow in righteousness, then we we choose to be merciful. If we're ungrateful, that's plowing in wickedness. And we sow in righteousness by choosing to be grateful. If we're lazy, we choose to be diligent. If we're a hearer of the word, we choose to be a doer. If we are habitually sinful, we do our best to stop. We we do the opposite of what we were doing to plow in wickedness, to sow to the flesh. 
we actually have to work to do some of these things. I mean, that's, that's why many people who become spiritually stagnant and begin to develop a hard heart, that's why they stay that way. And that's why they progressively get worse. Because to sow to yourselves in righteousness, to break up the fallow ground, is hard. It takes legitimate, consistent, hard, often painful effort on our part. And the reality is very few people want to do hard work. We want everything given to us. I shouldn't have to do anything to have everything. We see it in the the social world. And we see it in the spiritual world. And it does not work that way. Not in the physical world. Not in the spiritual world. There is work that has to be done. And what we do is we, when we are deciding I'm not going to do the work. But I'll be the exception. That's what we say. I'm not going to get so hard hearted that I turn from the Lord. I'm not going to get to the point that they are that God is going to bring judgment into their lives. That, that would never happen to me. I'll be the exception. Knowing that that's what we say and that's how we are. The Apostle Paul prefaced the law of sowing and reaping by saying, Be not deceived. I'll not be the exception. And neither will you. If we don't do the hard work, our hearts will not be plowed up. We will not sow in righteousness. We have to do the hard work. And a person unwilling to do the hard work of sowing righteousness is a person neglecting spiritual things. This will produce spiritual stagnation. It will harden our hearts. And it will lead us to turn from the Lord eventually. So we identify the warning signs. We sow righteousness. And then we seek the Lord. While we do have to do the hard work, it's not all us. We aren't fixing ourselves. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground of your heart. For it is time to seek the Lord. Till He come and rain righteousness upon you. We break up the fallow ground. We begin to sow in righteousness. But we must call on God to help us. Because we cannot do it on our own. Due to the depravity of the human heart, we are always able to come up for a reason why our sin is okay. I mean, if something that we talked about in the warning signs convicted you tonight, there is already something within you working to make that conviction go away. There is already something within you trying to convince you to ignore that conviction. Something within you trying to make you say, don't listen, don't do it. It doesn't mean you. You are the exception. You're not the one that He's talking to. It won't happen in your life. And apart from God's help, we will always listen to the voice that affirms us. We will always listen to the voice that takes away the conflict of our hearts and soothes our consciences. But the reality is, 
The voice that soothes our conscience when we are out of sync with God's Word is never God. It may be the world, it may be our sinful nature, and it may be the devil. But it is not God seeking to soothe our conscience when we are out of sync with His Word. Our desperately wicked heart does not want us to recognize the warning signs, to sow in righteousness and seek the Lord. The sinful part of our hearts does not want us to be tender-hearted toward the Lord and fully devoted to following Jesus. That's why we have to seek the Lord for help. Only God can truly search our hearts. Only God can truly plow up the hard ground of our hearts. Only God can truly change our hearts. We cannot make the necessary changes. We must seek Him. But we must seek Him in truth. We must genuinely seek Him. Look, look back at, Ma- at Matthew, no, Hosea 7 and verse 13. 14, I'm sorry. It says, And they have not cried unto me with their hearts. When they howled on their beds, they assembled for corn and wine, and they rebelled against me. Here's the picture. God wants to help His people. He wants to restore them. He wants to tenderize their hearts. And so they pretend to seek Him. The idea of howling upon their beds is that they make a great outward show of repentance, a great outward show of mourning over their sin, but... That's all that it was. A great outward show. They were not really seeking Him, turning to Him, crying out to Him with their heart. And that happens a lot in our day. That same sort of mindset happens. How many people, they find themselves in a bad place in life. They've made bad decisions and now the world is crumbling in. So they come to church and they kneel at an altar and they cry and they recommit their life to Jesus. And as soon as whatever was crumbling is not crumbling anymore, what do they do? They go right back into what they were doing before their lives started crumbling. God wasn't the one they were seeking. They, They needed a good luck charm to fix the problems of their life. We say things like, God, fix my heart. But inwardly we're thinking, but I'm not actually going to change anything about the way that I'm living. Fix my problems. Make it better. But I'm not going to do anything differently than I've ever done. That is not genuinely, sincerely seeking the Lord. Outward tears and loud wailing and other physical signs of remorse are not necessarily signs of genuine repentance and genuine seeking God. If they are not accompanied by a willingness, a desire to change, to do whatever God wants us to do, those outward signs are worthless. They are meaningless. They are going through the motions. Because when we are genuinely seeking the Lord for help, there is within our mind, within our heart, an unconditional surrender to the Lord. I will do whatever you want me to do. No conditions. Not anything but that. 
not anything but later, whatever. My life is all before you, God. Fix what's wrong. My life is yours. You show me. And I'll do anything and everything that you want me to do. And without that sort of surrender, and that sort of seeking the Lord, we'll simply continually be spiritually neglectful. And it will continue to produce more spiritual stagnation. And our hearts will just get harder and harder and harder until we depart, as Hebrews says, from the living God. So do I do we see any signs of spiritual stagnation in our lives? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to plow up our hearts and seek righteousness or sow righteousness? Are we going to seek the Lord and totally surrender ourselves to Him? Or are we going to just keep on doing what we've been doing, hoping that we'll be the exception? Meanwhile, seeing spiritual stagnation increase, hearts get harder, less desire, less longing, less wanting for the things of God, until eventually we see no real purpose in it at all. We have to choose what we're going to do if we see the signs. God God clearly wants us to turn to Him. But He did leave the people of the northern kingdom. He left it in their hands. He sent Jose. He gave the message. Now it's their choice. Tonight it's our choice. We have to choose what we're going to do.